Welcome to the hills. I know I'm talking to a lot of people online and also a lot of people that are in person at the West Fort Worth campus, the South Lake campus, and the North Richmond Hills campus. Thank you for being with us. If you are worshiping in person at one of our three campuses, you recall that we said uh, we anticipate changing our protocols as we notice the pandemic's impact lessening in our nation. So beginning in June, we said masks will be mandatory, and there's some other protocols that we're going to uh, diminish. And I'll send a video this week to everyone to let you know about that. Thank you so much for the way you have supported us in the hard decisions we've had to make this past year. Like you, I praise God that the impact of the pandemic is diminishing. Amen? Amen. And one of the things that's changing because it is, is that we're getting to travel more. And I love to travel. And so last month, Jamie and I made our first trip in about a year, and we went to Charleston, South Carolina. Now, if you have never been, I highly recommend that as a place to visit. Incredible architecture. You have the beach, and you have amazing food that is not good for you. I mean, it is awesome. And for example, let me show you what I had for breakfast one day. I went in and said, what is your basic biscuit sandwich? They gave me that. That biscuit is made with lard. And there is a huge uh, chicken breast on that biscuit, covered in cheese, covered in breakfast bacon, covered in sausage gravy, and I ate all of it. Don't you dare judge me. I know it was bad for me. Here's what I think. Number one, it tasted great. And number two, it means I'm going to meet Jesus sooner. So I call that a win-win. And there was something else about Charleston that was especially intriguing to me. I love history. And that's one of the oldest cities in our nation and once the fourth largest city of our nation. And it goes all the way back to before the Revolutionary War. And on this particular trip, Jamie and I especially wanted to learn more about what life was like for people who came to this country against their will, the enslaved peoples. And so, for example, we went to a couple of plantations and particularly took tours to learn what was life like for slaves on those plantations. This picture you're seeing is one of the cabins. That's what it would have looked like in the 1850s. Those two doors represent two single rooms where families would have stayed, maybe 18 to 20 people in that little cabin. We went to a, a museum that was once a former slave market where human beings were sold. And it was a spectacular museum. And I learned a lot about slavery in this country I did not know. For example, I did not know that the great majority of slaves that came from West Africa did not come to America. They went to the West Indies, the Caribbeans, and South America. I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was a global economy that that evil institution funded. That the wealth of Europe would go down to West Africa where slaves were purchased and brought to America where they would produce the goods and the crops that would then go back to Europe. And many economies were built on this evil institution. And that's not a new thing. For a national economy to be built through oppression. So the last number of weeks, we have been studying the Exodus. When God delivered the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage and oppression. And I would argue it is the greatest story in the Old Testament. And I say that because no other story gets referred to more in the Old Testament 
or the New Testament than the story of the Exodus. And it's not just the greatest story in the Old Testament, it is the backdrop to the greatest story in the New Testament. We'll talk more about that next week. But it might surprise you then to learn that the slave owners did not want their slaves to know about this story. I learned about the slave Bible. And by the way, there's a new museum in Washington, D.C. I haven't been. I hear it is spectacular called the Museum of the Bible. And they have an entire display. And you can learn. This Bible was published in 1807 in England because the thought was we need to Christianize the slaves. That's a good missionary thing to do. But we don't want to teach them so much of the gospel that they might think freedom is their right as people in Christ. And so the cover says selected verses. And so, for example, they selected the verse in Colossians that says, slaves obey your masters. They did not select the verse in Galatians that says, in Christ there's neither slave nor free. And the single largest narrative that was left out of the slave Bible was the story of the Exodus. How do you teach people about the God of the Bible and leave out the greatest story in the Old Testament and the backdrop to the greatest story in the New Testament. Is there a greater injustice than to leave the impression that the God of the Bible does not care about injustice? And so what we're doing today is we're going to work through the narrative in the Exodus story that we call the plagues. And it takes about five chapters, about chapter 7 through 11 or 12, and you can read when you get home. There's too much material to read right now. But what we're going to do is ask ourselves, what is going on in that unprecedented time of biblical history? And it begins with this question. Moses and Harrison come back to Egypt. They stand before Pharaoh. We saw this last time. They said, God says, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord. I don't know Yahweh, and I will not let the people go. And so what we read then in the plagues is a tension, and it's not between Pharaoh and Moses. It is between Pharaoh and Yahweh. And Pharaoh said, who is the Lord? And God is about to answer his question with a 10-plague internship. In fact, look at the very first plague in chapter 7. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile, and it will be changed into blood. And God said the same thing before the plague of the frogs and the flies and the hail and the locust. God was saying, you asked, who is the Lord? Well, I'm going to answer your question. Watch this. And it wasn't just the Egyptians that are learning who Yahweh is. Remember, the Hebrew people, they haven't heard from God in several hundred years. They don't know who he is either. When Moses is out in front of that burning bush, the Lord says, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I want you to notice the very first thing God reveals about himself. Back in Exodus 3, the Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. 
So the very first thing God reveals about himself to Moses is that he is a God who notices and cares for and rescues the oppressed. That the God of the Bible is a God of justice. You want to have a long Bible study, look up every time the word justice shows up in the Bible. And almost always it refers to God. Like Psalm 89, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. And to the oppressed, this is very good news. Now here's the thing. God is infinite. And not any of his attributes are the sum of who he is. And so different cultures tend to focus on different aspects of God. If you're a culture of some level of affluence or power, you tend to focus on God's love and his mercy and his faithfulness. If you're in a culture of impoverishment or oppression, you tend to focus on a God of justice because that's good news to you. For example, only recently did I learn about Fannie Lou Hamer. Now, she was uh, a civil rights activist in the 1950s, and she was arrested many times for the crime of trying to register black people to vote. And in one of those arrests, Ms. Hamer was brutalized physically and sexually. And when she was released, this woman who only advocated nonviolence turned to her abusers and she said this, has it ever crossed your mind how you're going to feel on the day when you have to meet God? You see, when you live with adversity and when you live with power and abuse over you, what keeps you going is the conviction, my God is a God of justice. Now, this should be good news to us. We should rejoice in this. We want a God that hates injustice. We want a God who is not going to allow evil or evildoers to get away with anything. But here's the thing we must admit. We don't always understand the way God chooses to administer his justice. And this narrative of the plagues is a good example. We're going to do some heavy lifting today. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Was that fair? Why did the plagues have to be so devastating? Was that right? Why did God kill the firstborn sons of an entire nation? Wasn't that going too far? I told you, we're going to do some heavy lifting today. Now, part of the job description of being God is you don't have to explain yourself. And when you're the creature and not the creator, you need to be very humble when you try to explain his ways. But what I want to do today is contend that God was completely just in the way he delivered the children of Israel from injustice. That everything he did, including the plagues, was just and right. And when I get through with that, I'm going to preach the gospel. Is that okay? Let's get going. First question. If God is a God of justice, then why did he harden Pharaoh's heart? And so, 
I went back and just read the whole narrative, about 15 chapters again. And I just made a note. Every time it says Pharaoh hardened his heart or God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Six times it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. And six times it gives God the credit for the hardening. And here's what I came to see. That Pharaoh's hard heartedness was a pre-existing condition. Go all the way back again to the burning bush narrative, Exodus 3. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. And after that, he will let you go. And so after the first plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And after the second plague, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And after the third and the fourth plagues, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And it isn't until the sixth plague that it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what's going on? Is God keeping a good man who's trying to do the right thing from doing what he wants to do? No. Is God just compromising the integrity of an innocent man who wants to do justice? No. What God is doing is simply cementing the spirit of callousness and injustice that had long been present in Pharaoh's heart. Let me illustrate like this. It's a hot July day in Texas. You take a saucer and put a stick of butter on it and a saucer and put moist clay on it and put them out under the sun. What's going to happen? The butter's going to melt and the clay's going to get hard under the same heat. Now that's what's happening in Egypt. Many of the Egyptians' hearts are getting soft. It says in chapter 11 that they had great affection for Moses and they began to see the Israelites favorably because of the judgments of God. So the very judgments that are softening the hearts of some people are hardening the heart of Pharaoh. And here's the point. God will let a person have the heart they want. But he has so ordered his moral universe that if you choose a rebellious heart, then God's work in your life is just going to make your heart harder. But God, who makes no man evil, can use evil men. And he used the stubbornness of Pharaoh to exalt his name to the nations of the world. But please be clear. God using evil is not the same thing as God excusing evil. So here's the first big takeaway to our hard question. Why did God harden Pharaoh's heart? God will judge the heart that harbors injustice. He will. The heart that will not get humble will get humbled. It says in Proverbs 29, whoever remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. And God gave Pharaoh many rebukes, but Pharaoh refused to repent, and he was destroyed by his hard-heartedness. God is patient, but even though God delays his judgment, he will not deny his judgment. And when judgment came, it was overwhelming. But did it have to be? And that's the second hard question. Why did the plagues have to be so devastating? And they were. Look at chapter 10, verse 7. Pharaoh's official said to him, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. 
do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? And it was. It was generations before that nation recovered from the judgment of God. But what must be remembered is God has not just given Pharaoh an answer to the question. He's given the whole nation and all the nations of the world. God is answering the question, who is the Lord? Who is the God that is worthy of the worship of the world? And he's establishing that he alone is worthy. You see, the plagues were essentially a battle of the gods. In chapter 12, God says, on that same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Uh, Later in the book of Numbers, God uh, uses Moses to explain to the children that were little when they came out what their parents experienced. He said, they marched out defiantly in full view of the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn." whom the Lord has struck down among them. For the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. Do you remember, and if you don't know this story, go read it, uh, that Moses and Aaron come the first time before Pharaoh. Let the people go. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? I don't know him. So Moses says, well, watch this. And he put his staff on the ground and became a snake. But Pharaoh turned to his sorcerers and said, show him what our gods can do. So they put their staves on the ground and they became snakes and more snakes. And the point that Pharaoh was making is, I got a lot more gods than you have. You remember what happened? Moses' snake ate Pharaoh's snakes. And God was saying, bring it on. You bring all you got and we'll see who is God. And through the plagues, God was swallowing the powers that the Egyptians worshiped. You see, the Egyptians worshiped many gods, but they mainly clustered around three things, around the Nile River, where they got their water, around the land, where they grew their crops and fed their livestock, and the sky, where they got the rain. The first two plagues, God took on the Nile, turned it into blood, had the frogs come out, and God said, I'm sovereign over the gods of the Nile. And then the land, he took the dust and turned it into gnats, he had the livestock die, and God says, I'm sovereign over the land. And then the sky, the hell came, and the sky turned black, and God said, I am sovereign over the sky. And through the plagues, God exposed Egypt's deities as frauds. So here's the second big thing to learn about God's justice. God will judge false gods that oppress and enslave. He did it, and he still does it. And by the way, That might explain that difficult season you went through or that you are going through. Perhaps right now, God is trying to expose the fraudulence of the thing where you have misplaced your hope. And so if you have put your hope in your wealth or your health or your education or your status or your politics, God will judge false gods and expose their frailty. And God's judgment is actually a mercy. He's trying to bless you by showing you how weak your imposter gods really are. See, it wasn't just the Israelites who were learning the correct answer to the question, who is the Lord? All of Egypt is. 
And even in the judgment, God is showing mercy. You notice in the first nine plagues, there's no loss of life. With the possible exception of the plague of hell, and even then, God warned the people, get everything under cover so no one gets hurt. And through nine plagues, God is judging the false gods of Egypt, but there's no loss of life. But the loss of life did come. And it wasn't plan B. Go back again to the burning bush, chapter 4. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refused to let him go. So I will kill your firstborn son. God let Pharaoh know at the very start how this battle is going to end if he doesn't repent. And still, does it make you uncomfortable to think that God would send that many families into such grief? And before we take on that last question, I want you to remember one thing. Jesus celebrated the Passover. You say, why is that important? The Passover was that annual meal where the children of God remembered their deliverance the night that God slew the firstborn of Egypt. Jesus thought what God did in the 10th plague was completely just. So what's going on? Well, to help understand, I'm going to take you to a movie that I have not personally seen. It came out about 10 or 15 years ago. It was called Taken, and I'm going to tell you the plot, and don't get mad. You've had time to see it if you haven't seen it yet. (laughs) But in this movie, there's a main character named Brian Mills, and he's played by an actor named Liam Neeson. And his daughter is in Paris and gets kidnapped by sex traffickers. And in this movie, there is a scene, even if you haven't seen the movie, I bet you've heard about this scene. He is on the phone with her kidnappers, and he says, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. If you're looking for ransom, I can tell you I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills, skills I've acquired over a very long career, skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. If you will let my daughter go now, that will be the end of it. I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, I will look for you. I will find you, and I will kill you. And your blood was pumping, wasn't it? And apparently, he did go on and shoot about 438 people. And by the way, they made a Taken 2 and a Taken 3, and I keep thinking, who are these idiots that keep taking things from Liam Neeson? It is not going to end well. But if you watch that movie, you rooted for him. Why? Because you know this is not a character who has a love for violence. This is a character who is motivated by his love for his child. And in the 10th plague, God was rescuing his beloved son from abusers. And let's be clear. The Israelites weren't just hired servants. They were oppressed, beaten, abused slaves. And just taking Pharaoh out wouldn't stop the abuse because the problem in Egypt wasn't just a man. It was a system. 
Now, all ancient cultures practice something called primogeniture, even the Hebrews. And that means that the oldest and first child gets the most. But in Egypt, the oldest got everything. Everything. Power was intentionally kept in the hands of just a few. If you're another sibling, the only way you could feel power was to oppress the slave or the immigrant or the poor beneath you. And you see this structure in Exodus. In chapter 5, you have Pharaoh, and then you have the officials, and then you have the overseers, and then you have the slave drivers, and then you have the Hebrew foreman, and then you have a slave. It is a system built on power held by just a few that can use it any way they want. The injustice in Egypt wasn't just located in a person. It was located in the structure of that culture. And God devastated that evil culture when he took out the linchpin, which was the firstborn. The scripture says in the Psalms, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. God will do what he has to do. And so we've learned God's going to judge injustice in a person's heart. And God is going to judge injustice in false gods. And we learn also God will judge systems that perpetuate injustice. Because injustice is not just personal. Injustice is structural. And I don't understand people who say, I don't believe there's such a thing as institutional or structural injustice. So follow this syllogism with me. All people are sinners. Amen? So that means only sinners can build systems. Which means there's a good chance the systems that sinners build just might have some sin in them. Ask the Christians getting murdered in North Korea if the problem was just a few bad hearts or if the whole system of that society needs to be torn down. Ask those of us who believe abortion is evil if the problem is just a few bad doctors or if there is an entire industry that profits from taking the life in the womb. And ask those of us who've dealt with the prison system. I have members of my family who've gone to prison. And they should have. But I know firsthand how hard it is after you've paid your debt to society to become the very person society wants you to become because the system won't let you. I can tell you story after story after story of people in my family that applied for and qualified for good jobs and wanted to be hired and the people wanted to hire them, but the system wouldn't let them. If I'm passionate, it's because I have seen firsthand that systems can keep people from being treated fairly. When Jesus walked into the temple, he saw a system, not just a few bad tradespeople, But he saw a system that was oppressive, and he turned those tables over. And by the way, that system was legal. A system can be legal and still be unfair. And so, who is the Lord? He is the God who notices and cares for and rescues the oppressed. And he calls on us to join him in this mission of deliverance. In Isaiah, God says, learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. 
Justice is not a liberal word. Justice is a Bible word. Justice is one of God's favorite words, which causes me to be perplexed over the criticism I've gotten in the last two years, more than any other, that I preach about justice, and that makes me a liberal. Now, I've been very clear. I think I know what the Scripture says about God's dream for the church, that the church is to embody the multi-ethnic heaven we're going to, that we're to preach a gospel that reconciles man to God and reconciles man to man, and that the church is to be a witness to the world that God can make things right and put things together. And somehow, somehow preaching that has caused people to attack me in our church. As if I'm to preach a selected Bible. Just take out Hosea and Micah and Isaiah and the Gospels. Like Jesus saying, you major in minors, but you need to focus on the big three. Mercy and faithfulness and justice. And in particular recently, the accusation, and I think it's fair to say the slander has been that I promote CRT, critical race theory. You say, what is critical race theory? Nobody knows. (laughs) If you go to 37 websites, you'll find 37 definitions, and I promise you'll find the one you like the most. But I can stand before God and say, I have never, ever promoted or preached a secular ideology from the right or from the left, ever. Do you understand? The scripture says, the scripture says, few of you should be teachers because you're going to be judged more harshly. I'm going to stand before God and give an account for what I taught. And I, I will not say, God, I taught everything perfectly. What I will be able to say is, God, to the best I could, I taught the Bible. You don't need to send me a link to your favorite website or tell me about your favorite book. I've got a good book. It's a really good book. And I make this promise to you. I make two promises to you as your senior teaching minister, as long as I have this job. Number one, I will only preach the Bible. And number two, I will preach the whole Bible, not just selected parts of it. I will preach the parts of the Bible that challenge our comfort zones. I will preach the parts of the Bible that challenge our politics. I will preach the parts of the Bible that challenge our desire to accommodate shifting cultural ethics. And when you preach the whole Bible, you preach that God is a God of justice. And that is very good news. It's something to celebrate. You know, they are right now in heaven. Revelation 15, they're around the throne, and this is what they're singing. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. 
All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Right now, in heaven, they are praising God that all his ways are just and righteous. And by the way, you know that name of that song? The verse before, they sang the song of Moses and the Lamb. And so let me close by reminding you, I said I'd preach the gospel. Our God is a God of justice. Evil is not going to get away with anything. Now, that raises the last question. Why should I not be afraid to meet such a God? Because I'm a sinner. My heart has not always been just. Neither has yours. God is going to judge the unjust heart, and God is going to judge the false gods, and God is going to judge the evil systems of the world. Evil is not going to get away with anything. But let me tell you one more thing God's going to do. He's going to judge the lamb so that his deliverance is just. Back in the 1800s, if you lived on the prairies and the prairie fire came, you couldn't outrun it. You couldn't get on a horse and outpace it. So how did you survive? You set fire to a patch of land on purpose. And when that land was scorched, you stood where the scorched, parched earth was so that when the prairie fire came, it went around you. It did not burn what had already been burned. And this God who hates evil and is going to judge every single part of it is going to send his wrath on sin. But when his judgment falls, it's going to miss me because it's going to fall on his firstborn. Who is the Lord? He is the God who sees and cares for and delivers the oppressed like you and me oppressed by sin oppressed by spiritual forces of darkness oppressed by death this God who is just is also justifier because he has provided a lamb so that you and I could be delivered and the lamb's name is Jesus And you and I, we want a God just like that. Let's pray. And so, God, I praise you for your justice. I want a God that hates evil and judges it. But, God, I also praise you that you love sinners. And that you have made a way to be just and justifier. You have made a way to punish sin and rescue sinners. And the name of the way is Jesus the Lamb. And so my prayer, God, today is that anyone listening to me right now that does not know Jesus will do so before this day's over. That your Holy Spirit will touch every heart to be more like your heart. That every person can look forward to the day that we meet a holy God.
because we meet you, God, covered by Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.